0: Well, good morning, church. We continue to explore the book of James and unpack his words of wisdom to the church for how we can deal with these worldly problems. I don't know about you, but I've found this series to be incredibly helpful. And I've, every time I've listened back and interacted with the sermons, I've been really blessed and challenged with how I react to things in the world. And how God asks and expects me to react and today we approach the question what should I do when I'm suffering I think we would all agree that this week especially we're feeling the heaviness of our hearts my prayer for all of us would be that through the study of God's word this day we'd be able to impart some of that back to God that he would take it from us and grant unto us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Before I do anything else, let me just pray for us. Father God, we pray for, for, for the exploration of your word, for the unpacking of what you want us to learn this day, that you will be with us, that you will be shaping us and teaching us what we need each one of us to know. And Father, as we've already prayed and as we've already shared, take from us this heavy heart. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. As I've already said, these studies have been a great series for us as a church, exploring James's wisdoms for the people of God, truths and guidance, but despite the years of distance between when they were first said and now still carry great truth and help thank you to pastor joanne for caring for reading our passages uh, during the service and there is a lot to get through it's a, it's a very broad sort of uh, couple of passages and the best way that i felt we could approach it was to break it down into three digestible sections and i know for some of you i say digestible and immediately your head goes to the biscuit don't worry, I've had the thought all through preparedness. But I want to break it down for us because it's a lot to get through and a lot to sink our teeth into. Uh, and as we heard, we start with James 4, verses 13 to 17. And in that first section of scripture, it talks about boasting about tomorrow. And what it is really cautioning us about is against having an attitude of independence from God. But it also comes with a challenge to not just how we live independently from God, but how God actually wants us to live into his will and in full (coughs) obedience. And we'll unpack each part as we go. But our second section in James 5 verses 1 to 6, in this section of scripture, James offers a warning to rich oppressors. And he gives them the warning that your sins will be condemned. They will be judged against you and then finishing our reading still in James 5 verses 7 to 12 which details this powerful message of patience and suffering until the coming judgment. Now at first glance all these sections of the passage they can feel a bit disconjointed they don't seem to flow in a natural way But I hope through the unpacking of it and through the sharing that God's placed in my heart, that you'll see that all of Scripture is God-influenced and that God is interweaving them together so that we can learn and so that we can grow. So let's dive right into it. In our first section of James today, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, James asks this question and it will appear overhead, what is your life? What is your wife? I wonder what your response would be to James if he was to come into the room and ask you that very question. Don't worry, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot and expect you to come up and give me an answer. But just in this moment, have a wee ponder about that. What is your life? It's a very important question see just before james asks it he challenges the lifestyle of the people who would have been listening uh, the original audience he says how they would go to such and such a city spend a year there buy and sell and make a profit and this was the custom of those in ancient times they traded city to city they would travel somewhere with a product or with something that they could offer they'd spend some time there, set up a shop and sell it to the locals and then once they've done their job and made a profit oh, they'd take their business elsewhere it was very simple and it was very sort of standard living uh, the Jews traded in Tyre, Sidon, uh, Caesarea, Crete, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Rome like they, they were a traveling people and the phrase I came across that I kind of like it is they were nomadic uh, or was it nomadic commercial salesmen. They were the salesmen of their day. They didn't necessarily go door to door, they went city to city and that's how they lived. And what James was speaking into was he was saying what is the desire of your heart? Why are you doing this? They were doing it to firstly make a living but also to make a name of themselves and to earn some money. They are living for themselves and in some way a lot of them are living for their own selfish ambitions. Which when, I can imagine when James asks them the question, What is your life? He's really digging deep and asking them, What is it you live for? What is your purpose in life? And hearing that question, as I've been preparing, it challenged me. It actually challenged me to the very core of my being as what is my life because for a long part of my story, my journey growing up being the eldest of four boys, my story wasn't being written by me, it wasn't being written by God, it was being written by my parents who told me This is what I want you to do when you grow up. This is how you're going to live. This is how you're going to behave. This is our expectations. And Ryan, you're going to live into them. And it wasn't until I became a young man, was off in college, following my mum and dad's ambitions, that this question maybe didn't come through scripture, but God sent it to me nonetheless. And it wasn't the life that I wanted for myself. It wasn't what I wanted to be. I didn't want to be what my mum and dad wanted me to be. And it was only when I discovered God that I discovered what he wanted me to be. What is your life? What James is really saying to them is what's the point in travelling town to town to make a quick buck or two? when your life is worth so much more to God? What's the point in going town to town and wasting your life away if it's only for yourself? As the passage says, our time on earth is limited. It describes it like a mist, a vapor, and we all know what that means. It's, it's see-through, it can come and go very easily. And this idea of vapour or a shadow was actually a frequent figure of speech in the Old Testament. Psalm 102 verse 11, Job chapter 8 verse 9, 1st Chronicles 29 to 15. Just to give you some context, this was something that people would have understood. It wasn't just some throwaway comment. But it's merely to convey how life can come and it can go. And I think all too well this week, we, we realise that more than we would have given our current context. And James is asking us to consider our own fragility. He's asking us to challenge that the way we live and move actually is only at the permission of God. James does not discourage us from planning or having a a sort of root map of our life is far from it but what he actually is trying to help us realise is that you could have a plan, you could have a, a goal or an ideal but God's plan is so much greater, God's purposes for us is so much more potent and impactful than anything we can think of on our own. And it's in his closing Remarks on this section that James leaves us with this, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James is telling them, don't live according to your will, but the will of God. It's of such great importance that we live in the accordance of the will of God, but Jesus himself, when he teaches us how to pray, keeps it front and centre. When he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he says, My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe Jesus encodes his prayer as an example of how to pray to remind us, humble ourselves. It's not about what you want. And sometimes that can be a hard pill to swallow. It's not about what you want, and that's hard to take. It's not about how happy I want my family to be. It's not about how secure I want my child to grow up. It's about what God wants for me. We can come up with all the plans we want. We could have a big house we could have the best paid job we can Yeah, we can go on a holiday every year oh wouldn't that be nice, we could get all the desires of our heart but if God is not in it, if it's not the will of God, church I don't want it if it's not what God wants from me, I don't want it because I've had those things before and they're fleeting, they're whole, they're self-fulfilling. But what I do is more of God in my life, in my family's life. Because God's plans are far greater than mine. I want to live a life in complete dependence on God. His will be done, not mine. In this next section of scripture James is going after the wealthy and I'll, we will get to where we'll get and it does feel a little bit disconjointed but remember jigsaws don't look like the picture until they're done. James goes after the wealthy he's really calling them out and challenging the way of life as it goes directly against what James had actually just talked about. A humble dependency on God. James explains how we need to have a whole life dependency on the will of God. I love that. A whole life dependency on the will of God. But for those who had the resources, the money, the power, well, they didn't need much else. Why would I need God in my life when life is all good? Why do I need to give all my money away when actually if I keep a little bit to myself I can live quite comfortably? For those who had all the resources and the money for them to follow God's paths and ways well that sort of goes against everything that they believe in. In fact God goes against their worldly way of living entirely. Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says this because all wealth does is it builds walls. It builds walls between ourselves and the poor, those who are less fortunate and those who are, and it builds walls between us and God. Because if you don't need God, you don't have any needs. That's a lie the world will tell you. You don't need to depend on God when all your needs are met. You're able to fend for yourself. And as the people of God, we know that when we follow God, we're not following out of a response of, oh maybe if I do this for God, I'll get that big mansion, I'll get that new car, I'll get all the desires of my heart. Because I'm being obedient. Because that's what the world tells us. If you put a quarter into sorry, very American. If you put money, a pound coin, into a vending machine, you get something out. God isn't a cosmic vending machine for our own pleasure, that when you do X, you get Y from God. That's not how God works. What God desires from you is relationship. And what do you do when you're in a relationship with someone? You communicate, you love, you spend time, you get to know each other. And one of the things that I found out through marriage, when we'd done the marriage preparation course, me and Sarah, is I like to give gifts. That's what God does with us when you're in a relationship with God. He just wants to bless you. He just wants to love you and flourish you with gifts because you're worth it. You are worth it to God. Any cost, any price, He would pay it for you. But the world tells us that money, well, when you've got an endless amount of money and you've got endless happiness, right? Do a quick Google when you go home. Look at all the people who have won the lottery and find out how many of them are, one, still millionaires and two, happy. Because I think you'd be shocked when you see the results. Money doesn't buy happiness, it can buy nice cars, nice house, nice things, but it can't fill that God-shaped gap in our lives and no amount of stuff that we try and bring or do or take can fill that God-shaped hole in our lives. And I do want to give the disclaimer that money isn't evil, money isn't bad. There's been plenty of wealthy men and women who have used what God has blessed them with to bless the kingdom and bless others. Money isn't evil. I just want to put that out there, a lot of good has been done with money. But what money can do is it can be incredibly deceitful, it can deceive us into thinking that we're safe, that life is good, that everything will be alright. It's, my folks always talked about it, it's the safety net for our lives, right? It's the, the comfort blanket, or maybe you've used this one, oh, I'm just putting it away for a rainy day. <coughs> well, church, the world is torrential outside. It's horrible out there. And this kind of thinking, actually, it sort of subtly corrupts that mentality that I was talking about, about this humble dependency on God. Because when we convince ourselves that we're safe and secure, well, we don't need to go to God for things, for provision, for for his care and his trust. And what we begin to do is we put our provision and trust in worldly things instead of putting it in God. What wealth does is it takes away our need to humbly be dependent on God. So when money is comfortable and life is good, we don't need to worry about the will of God because, well, my own will is doing quite well, thank you very much. Life is going fine. And James gives them a warning. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are mothed. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. What James refers to is the destruction of three kinds of wealth. Stores of food are corrupted, they they rot, garments are moth-eaten, and gold and silver corrode. Each one of them comes to nothing in their own way and in the days of judgment when we will all be held accountable before God, their wealth will not help them. The corruptible nature of wealth of the rich will witness against them, God will hold it against them. On the day of judgment it will be revealed that they will have lived their lives in arrogant independence. Instead of having this humble dependence, there's this arrogant independence. That's almost like the, the opposite of what I've been really talking about—the world we live in. Instead of storing up, instead they stored up their earthly treasure, when they actually should have been keeping up their treasures in heaven. And worst of all, this is the thing that really just gets to me. It's the way in which they had accumulated their wealth. It was the suffering and exploitation of others. Using their positions to exploit and murder anyone that got in their way. And James gives us imagery of them fattening their hearts. Which I couldn't help but be drawn to that image of when we become new, new creations and Jesus gives us this new fleshy heart. It's again the opposite of what God wants for us, that when we actually live the way the world wants us, it fattens and hardens our heart. Which even just as you say, even as the words come out of my mouth, the image of that is just horrible. But actually when we become new creations in Christ, Jesus gives us this new heart, this soft heart of flesh, new life. it's just a beautiful comparison of how the world will convince you that you want one thing but actually it's only when we come to christ and live who god wants us into his will that that's where life is and as we sort of transition from this conversation about the welfare, uh, the oppression of the the wealth of people we we then moved and transitioned into James speaking directly about being patient in suffering. It was important that we we spent time exploring what James was talking about beforehand because I think it's only then that when you read this passage that you truly understand the full validity of what James is speaking into. Because it would be easy for me to take this out of this of the scriptures and just preach into it from our own perspectives and where our own hearts are today. And that wouldn't be doing the scripture justice. So we really had to stretch our legs. And this is something one of my lecturers says, we had to go for a scriptural jog. We had to just briefly jog through what we were talking about. So that when we do arrive at what God wants us to hear this morning, we've been physically preparing for it. So thank you for your patience. But it was important that we we spent the time investing there so we'll be blessed here. James encourages those who have been taken advantage of, the people that the rich oppressors have been oppressing, it's at this point that James is directly speaking to them. He's sort of giving them this reassurance. And James says this, Their cries, they haven't fallen upon their ears. The crimes that have been done against them, they will not go unpunished. The original text says, the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Seboath. Now, the title, Lord of the Seboath, in James 5, verse 4, should not be confused with the similar title, Lord of the Sabbath, used in Mark two twenty-eight and Luke 6, 5. Instead, it is translation of the idea behind the Hebrew term, Lord of the hosts. Um, and you can find more about that in Romans 9.29 and Isaiah one nine. and what it really means is it's the title Lord of the Armies especially in the sense of the heavenly and angelic armies and it describes God as this warrior the commander in chief the one who leads his heavenly hosts it describes God as the warrior the one who Who's meant to bring justice to those who have been treated unjustly? And what it is, is both a rallying cry for the oppressed and a warning to the oppressors. The cries of the people who have been abused, who have been suffering, they have come to the ears of God. And God doesn't do nothing about it. God is preparing for the judgment. Often, those who are poor, who are at the bottom of society, within the world, they don't have the loudest of voices, they don't have the biggest of opportunities to get out of that oppression and be lifted out of it. And what James offers to the world is hope. He offers hope to those who have no voice. He offers freedom for those who have just known captivity all of their life. He offers justice to the ones who just look around and see injustice. He guarantees them that ultimately that he will right every wrong and answer every prayer which is now when we arrive at James 5, verse 7, James says, Therefore be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it, until it receives it early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And I wanted us to sort of ponder what James was really trying to say here. There's a lot of ways I could have taken it, but I was really drawn into this image that James gives to the people of a farmer. Now, I, I am not a farmer kid, never grew up in near a farm at all. But one of the blessings about being in college was I was with someone who all his days grew up in a farm. So a lot of the time he shared a lot of his experiences and a lot of the time I was really nonsensical. But he came out some, with some real gems sometimes. And I want to firstly say, I have some real admiration for the life of a farmer. They, they do long hours, they do hard graft. It's it's a tough job and it's not for everyone is what I'm saying. And primarily I'm saying it's not for me. I'm, I'm not built for it as you can tell. But what James is really trying to draw out from that image of the farmer, is patience and farmers know patience don't they and i've got a couple of sort of examples of how the farmer teaches us to be patient so the first one to be understood is the farmer waits with a reasonable hope and expectation of reward as expected a farmer raises cattle with the intent that one day they will harvest and sow what they've been invested in They will either have sheep to get wool, they will raise uh, cows to get uh, milk or beef or whatever. As you can tell, I am not an expert farmer, so if I say something that's not right, have a bit of grace. (laughs) But farmers, they invest so that they get a return, They, they sow and they hope to one day reap what they sow. But remember, life doesn't always go the way we expect it. Sometimes animals get sick. They don't cultivate as much as you'd expected. But that doesn't stop the farmer from doing his job. He has to do what he needs to do in order to get from one point to the other. There's no point in him saying, I want to have a massive harvest and then does nothing about it. If he doesn't plant the seed, if he doesn't water the earth, if he doesn't tend to it, there'll be nothing to pull out when the the harvest season comes. He has to get to work. The lesson here is that as Christians, we may suffer in the immediate. We may feel that we're going through seasons of suffering and hardship, but remember, there will come a day that as we are faithful to God, we will be rewarded. As we are faithful to Him, He will be faithful to us. And just as those who will be judged and condemned in their own actions, so too, God will hold us to account. Whether we've stood by the field and watched the earth, or whether we've got down on our hands and knees and we've planted a seed or two. And we've watered and cultivated the land and I know you can read in between the lines and know what I'm really trying to say here. We are going to be held accountable to our actions and that includes what we do very much as well as what we choose not to do. You can't harvest if you don't put in the work but we have to be patient in that. The second lesson we learn from the example of the farmer's patience is he waits despite changing circumstances and many uncertainties. Farmers have so many things they have to take into account. The weather, production, we have the the financial supply and demand of the product that you're trying to cultivate, all the variables that they have to consider, the weather if it's just chucking it down, there's no point putting anything in the ground because it's just gonna be mush. All of these factors they need to consider. But regardless of all these changing variables, the farmer still has a job to do and has to still continue working all the while. Church, so too, we as a people of God, we have to be continually investing and shaping and being who God wants us to be Despite the changing circumstances of the world outside, despite the turmoil that it may be outside these walls, we still have a job to do. We still have to be patient and faithful and serving despite what's going on out in the world. We have to stand true to our convictions. We have to stand firm in our faith. The third and last of the lessons i want to explore of the farmer's patience is he waits encouraged by the work and harvest of others it's encouraging when we look around and we see that other people are thriving when other churches are doing well and we can really see that the spirit of god is doing something new in the world friends it should be an encouragement to us because we're a part of that we might not have a hand in it, but we've been praying for it. We've been asking God for a revival, we've been praying to God for a harvest. Church, that is our desire, that is what we started off our year praying into, that the harvest is plentiful and that this will be our year of harvest. Do we still believe that? I, I surely believe we do. I don't know if you've picked up in the news about other church circles, but there seems to be somewhat of a revival going on at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And this event was prompted after students spontaneously stayed in their Hughes Auditorium following their weekly chapel gathering on the 8th of February. They're still there. Since the 8th of February, there's been a full auditorium of people praying to God, worshipping, lives being transformed. Church this is the harvest that we've been talking about. This is the spirit on the move. God is doing something. God is harvesting and cultivated the land for so long. The desires of our heart, the will of God, that humble obedience to him I know God wants it for us, I know God wants it for East Belfast. You can see the earth has been prepared, the weather is just right, this is the season. We have been patient, we've been patient through suffering, we've been patient through hardship and I didn't want to leave us today with that message of suffering and pain. I want to tell you that that pain and that suffering, the service of all those who have served over the years, faithfully, day in and day out, week in and week out, that their hard work, their harvesting has been for something. Their prayers have not fallen upon deaf ears. God is doing something, church. We've been so patient. We've been so faithful, it's time to get to work. This should be an encouragement that God is at work. I know for certain he's at work in my life. I know that through this series, he's been at work and through each one of our lives. And I hope that you've been able to subtly see the thread Fred have been trying to lead us throughout this message. But the answer to the question, what should we do when we're suffering? It's just simply to humble ourselves. Be obedient to God. And that doesn't belittle the suffering that we're going through. And I am not going to be ignorant and say it even takes it away. But church, it's not yours to hold on to. Give it to God. Trust in him who has been faithful to you for so many years. Maybe God hasn't been faithful to you because you don't know God. Maybe you haven't seen how he's been faithfully weaving into your life. I would ask you, draw near to him this day. Don't go another day without living how God wants you to live. Don't go another day living out of your own plans. When God's is so much greater. Seasons come and go. But God is faithful throughout them. When these seasons come and they will come, when we are rooted in Christ, we are firm. We stand strong in our faith. And at the end of all things, as we have been faithful to God in our suffering, that God will be faithful to us. As we sort of conclude our time and as I invite the worship team up to lead us in our closing song, In Christ of I want to make you aware that next week we intend to incorporate an opportunity for people to come and be prayed over for healing. We believe God is doing new things. We believe in the power that God, by His Holy Spirit, has given unto us. It's not for us to keep, it's for us to bless others with. So I'd ask you this week, draw near to God, pray, and come with expectant hearts, that God is doing new things among us. But most of all, be faithful to him, who has always been faithful to us. Thank you, worship team.